you doing, everybody? Welcome to the uh, Football Outsiders live stream for, oh my God, I can't believe we're already in December. December 1st, 2021. Hi, I'm Aaron Schatz. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Football Outsiders. I'd like to welcome you watching on Twitch and YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and in the little corner of our site, Widget in the corner of Football Outsiders. Welcome everybody who's watching today's live stream. I am joined today by Cale Clinton, uh, any given Sunday and major domo of Week in Quotes, and our resident Bengals fan, Rob Weintraub, and uh, our man in the center of uh, college football down in Atlanta. We, uh, we were just discussing, these two gentlemen are both Syracuse men, and we were just discussing the uh, demise of Syracuse football before we came on the air. Uh, <laughs> Today's show is the Ask Us Anything show. I've got a few questions from before uh, we got on the air. Uh, we're, we'll get to, but you can ask us any questions. That's why we want you watching live when we're on at 1 o'clock Eastern every afternoon, every weekday afternoon. We're not here on Saturdays and Sundays, but we want you watching live on Twitch or on YouTube so you can ask us questions. And today we can take all your questions uh, but I wanted to uh, start by talking to Rob how he feels about these two big Bengals wins and about my writing this week about how DVOA doesn't like the Bengals compared to other methods. Like even EPA, uh, I know EPA metrics have the Bengals a lot higher than both DVOA and ESPN's Football Power Index also has them only 18th. So uh, what's your feeling about that, man? Well, I mean, obviously, my feeling is I'll take the W's and forget about the advanced stat for now. Um, True. Especially uh, beating the Steelers twice in one season is not quite unprecedented, but it's for a guy like me. Not just like, beating them, but punishing them this punish, week. Yeah, it was, it was a, a great Hanukkah present, let's put it that way. Um, and, yeah, it's like, you know, drinking deep from the oasis after crawling through the desert for many, many years. So, big picture, I could care less. Uh, you know, I'm not surprised. Listen, the Bengals racked up a few big victories earlier in the year, you know, and squeaked them out over the likes of the uh, the Jaguars and uh, the Vikings. They lost to the Bears and the Jets. I mean, it, you know, they, these were either or games. Um, and they really did. They, they played a tight game against the Packers, but they also played the Browns, who are a good DVOA team who, who pummeled them. So, you know, going into the bye week, especially not a surprise that the, the DVOA wasn't as high on them as as their record indicated. And the last two weeks, they've crushed the Raiders and the Steelers, but those are two teams sort of in the same boat as the Bengals, really, kind of you know mid-pack teams. Not surprising they didn't take a huge leap, even though by efficiency standards, they would certainly played better in those games. Oh, yeah, and, they definitely leapt up over the last two weeks compared yeah. to where they were before. Yeah, seven or eight spots, which is <clears throat> obviously great, but they, you know, they're still not a team that you look at as a top 10 DVOA team, which, you know, that can certainly change. The one thing that we've seen this this season, especially in the AFC, is that things can change in an eye blink. And, uh, you know, they went from the number one overall seed to, I think, number 10 in the span of two weeks right before the bye. Uh, and, you know, the bye week really helped them. They got back to work on a couple of things. They, they really solidified what they do best, which is run wide zone power game beat with Joe Mixon. And uh, they, they replaced their right guard, who was Jackson Carmen, a rookie, sort of the guy that was the number two pick in the Jamar Chase, uh, you know, exacted there and justified picking a wide receiver when the whole world was like, draft Panay Sewell, draft an offensive lineman at number five. And they didn't. They drafted Chase, and they said, we got a good lineman in the second round. But now they benched him for a guy who was a sixth-round pick last year, Hakeem Adinaje, who was injured at the beginning of the year. And most team, most fans, including myself, assumed he was out for the year. But he's back, and he's actually fitting what they want to do technically and agility-wise at right guard much better than Carmen. And I think you've seen him play, and, and that's really reflected in the last couple of weeks. Trey Hopkins, the center, he was back from a torn ACL and started the year, but he wasn't back really until the bye week, and he's had his best two games the last couple of weeks. Just, you know, just the rest and the health and got better at agility. You really saw it against Pittsburgh. Uh you know, Devin Bush, who also was coming off a torn ACL and is decidedly not as back. He was beating Bush to the spot over and over again to the point where Bush was freelancing and had to get benched. And, uh, you know, they're just doing a lot more things technically correct on that offensive line, which is cohering much better as a unit than it had been. 
and it's showing up. Joe Mixon is still Joe Mixon. He's a he's a horse guy. You don't really think of as a power back, but you know, is just as big as Jonathan Taylor. And despite the flamboyance and the slipperiness in his game, is a guy you don't want to tackle in the second half. That's showing up, uh, especially against the Raiders. So they're doing what they want to do on the ground finally. And it took them, you know, the half the season to get that going. And they're also teams are take, trying to shade their secondary to take away Jamar chase. And the Bengals are like, no problem. We'll throw it to T. You Higgins. Got two other guys. Hi. More. They got Uzama. <laughs> you know, they'll beat you in the air in a lot of different ways. And Joe Burrow is certainly equipped to do that. You know, he's another guy who's certain metrics love him. DVOA DYAR does not necessarily. I think a large part in some of some of that's the turnovers that he's had this year. Last two games, he's cut down on those. You know, they haven't been crucial, certainly. And uh, you know, he obviously knows what to do and where to go with the ball for most of the time. When you have a plethora of weapons that they have, you know, the, he can just play point guard. He doesn't have to beat you deep like he was doing. Right. Which is his so, strength. I mean, yeah. diagnosing the defense before the snap and figuring out where he wants to go with it is his Absolutely. strength. It's not his arm. It's his no, he's, he's not a drive the ball into tight windows guy. He, he'll, he'll do it on occasion, but he's definitely uh, let's get the right play in out of these two or three that are presented to me at the line and go to the wide open guy or the mismatch. And you saw right. that against Pittsburgh, especially it was, it was blatant. So, you know, whether that is sustainable over the, you know, as they face their tougher and tougher defenses down the stretch is, is arguable. Uh, I think the chargers though, the next opponent, certainly not a good run defense. I think they're dead last right in DVOA and their yeah. past defense has kind of come down a little bit from a hot start as well. So there should be opportunities to uh, score some points. Justin Herbert obviously presents difficulties, but they've been pretty hit or miss like everybody else pretty much in the AFC right now, except new England. We'll get to them later. Uh, so overall, you know, DVOA be damned. You got to like their chances certainly to be in the mix. And then it's just going to be a question of whether they stay healthy, knock on wood loudly, because that's been a key to their success so far this year, obviously, certainly in the AFC North where the other three teams are pretty beat up and the Bengals are, are winning by attrition as much as anything else right now. Uh, and you know, they, they're the fewest penalties in the league. They're doing a lot of things, right? So the question yes, is, that they, is part of it, I think is the fewest penalties in the league. Because of the fact that most penalties don't count in DVOA, right? I think that that is one of the reasons for the difference between where the Bengals are and DVOA. For example, Hitchhiker's Pie points out that opponent-adjusted EPA per play that Tucker Boynton does also has the Bengals fifth, which is way yeah. higher than DVOA. And it is surprising to see that big of a gap between one opponent-adjusted me advanced metric and another opponent-adjusted advanced metric and I think a big reason is penalties. I yeah. think that I'm not crediting, you know, I'm not, it's not that I'm, I'm not crediting them for lack of penalties. I'm not penalizing other teams other for teams. Of penalties, right? right? Other than only a couple penalties count in DVOA, false starts, uh, defensive pass interference. Um, but for the most part, I'm not counting penalties because penalties are usually not very predictive. They're usually very kind of random. So, yeah. um, that could be one of the big differences between DVOA and other metrics when it comes to the Bengals. And you're absolutely right. The Chargers would seem to be a good um, opponent for them because their run defense is so bad. They're also really weak against tight ends. So yeah. it could be a big Ozuma game. But I just feel like um, I don't really trust the Bengals' defense as much as the standard stats do. And I feel like the Chargers can put up a lot of points. The Chargers are second right now in offense. So I feel like I, I, the only reason why I wouldn't call this a, a shootout is because Cincinnati will run the ball so much that it'll take lots of time off the clock and it'll yeah. keep it from being a true shootout. That's the game plan, obviously. Keep the ball away from Herbert and Eckler and, and uh, the offense as much as you possibly can. Uh, defensively, I would say that really they, they fell off badly against the Jets and Browns, the Bengals this is, but, uh, you know, a lot of that was just missed tackling, bad tackling. And uh, they've improved that since the bye week. It wasn't schematic. It wasn't like they were getting overmatched per se. You know, it was just, it was just technique, you know, this guy is rallying to the spot and blowing the play when, when the time came. So, uh, Pittsburgh and, and Las Vegas, uh, ball carriers and receivers were not getting a lot of extra yards against them the way the Jets and Browns were, you know, obviously you got to keep that up and that's not week to week sustainable necessarily, but I, I feel like their defense has played well 
essentially in all games but two, well enough to win all but two of the games. So, you know, the preponderance of the evidence would suggest that if they're not a shutdown takeover defense, but they're certainly a defense that will keep you in games. And as you say, as long as they're not on the field too much due to turnovers or due to, you know, the, the running game being shut down by the Chargers or anybody else, uh, they should be in a good the running game will not be shut down by the Chargers. It's highly unlikely. Yeah. I don't want to. It's highly unlikely. It is. Um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts, Kale. I will fully admit I have not seen a lot of the Bengals. I'm looking forward actually to watching this week. The Bengals Chargers is the, it's not, you know, it's a one o'clock game. So it's not a national game, but it is the game that's going to be showed in um, like over half the country, I think, in the one o'clock. Uh, time slot in, here in, Boston, in Boston, that's the game we're getting. Oh, we're getting yeah, they, they were going to flex it to uh, the Sunday night. There was thought that they were going to flex it, but they yeah, and they ended up flexing Broncos Chiefs instead. I guess figuring people wanted to watch Mahomes. Um, yeah. I would. I guess that's a sign of the fan base of the Los Angeles Chargers because normally you would think that they would want to flex the number two media market instead of Kansas City Denver. Yeah, you would think. But there are no Chargers fans, I guess. There's right. even fewer Chargers fans than there are Bengals fans. So that should tell you something. But, yeah, I, I think down the road you'll see some the Bengals get into some better positions to be viewed, as you say. So, uh, But, yeah, go ahead and uh, go, let uh, somebody else talk about the – let somebody else brag on the Bengals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for any given Sunday stuff, I, I had the chance to watch one game for the Bengals at least, and it was the uh, their massive win over the Ravens. And my conclusion that at least came out of that game was, yeah, the offense is really explosive, but a lot of those touchdowns, I think both of C.J. Uzoma's touchdowns came on broken coverage on Baltimore's behalf. Uh, and I think one of the I, – I don't know. I'm still pretty green when it comes to DVOA. I, I need to keep, you know, familiarizing myself with how it's calculated and things like that. But one of the things that really stands out to me with Cincinnati is the fact that, one, we have them playing the second easiest schedule in all of football terms of total DVOA and their bottom five in a uh, variance like they, they, they've been extremely volatile throughout the entire year so yeah. it's interesting kind what of happens when you lose to the Jets and get spanked by the Browns and then have yeah. these big wins over the Steelers and the Ravens yeah and it seems like they've come to form in a little bit like you know Mixon's had two straight hundred yard games Jamar Chase is doing Jamar Chase things he's been the connection between Burrow and Chase has not you know, dissipated since they both left LSU. It's still been very special. But, like, the Bengals just have this weird scheduling thing, like, where if McPherson doesn't just completely forget how to kick in overtime, they might even have a win over Green Bay. Like, they've got some really strong wins. The Baltimore one still especially stands out to me. Uh, kicking off the season against Minnesota, too. I understand that's really early, but we all understood, like, Minnesota's got a pretty good offense. It was surprising they were able to pull that out, at least in my opinion. But, like, it's just those, like, those losses still stick out to me. Like, I still don't, like, the Bengals and the Titans both having losses against the Jets still just. Yeah, the Titans, at least, you can sort of understand based on personnel, the lack of Jones and Mm -hmm. Brown in that game. But, yeah. Yeah, I've I've been really impressed with this offense. I've also been impressed with just how like this defense I don't know how long it's going to hold up long term but it's looked better than I would have expected coming into the year at the very least yeah let me I'll say a couple things first let me defend future 10-time all-pro Evan McPherson uh my personal kicking hero that game that that kick against the Packers was right down the middle I mean he was celebrating to win it and then this bizarre thing that they have at Paul Brown Stadium every now and again they get a high gust of wind that comes out of nowhere up above the stadium and it pushed it just enough Anyway, hard left. Uh, it sure. took a real hard turn there. If you remember watching that game, uh, yeah, and I think you have to. It's it's sort of like by DBOA and just in general terms, you look at the Bengals kind of uh, big picture from the entire season. Yeah, they're they're erratic. They did some things that you would leave you scratching your head. They had these great performances out of nowhere and crappy performances when you just when you're ready to trust them again. But I mean, I think again that, that this is what happens when you have a young team that's just really coming together. They have you know, sort of uh, uh, this quote-unquote culture that's going on in their locker room that they took a couple years to build. And after those two losses, the Jets and the Browns, there was a, you know, a a lot of people coming forward to say, hey, you know, you guys panicked, are you worried about anything? And they were like, 
that we got this, you know, it stems from Burrow, I think in a large part, but also just the players that they added, they added specifically, they tried to get guys who were from winning teams and teams that, you know, they, they, they understand the big picture of it all. And, and a little bit of, you know, up and down arrow on the DVOA graph was not going to send them into a tizzy. And that you saw that with the last two games, they were you know, pretty relaxed about it. They knew that they were better than the Raiders, better than the Steelers and just, they were going to pound them until the dam broke, as they say. And I think that's a good, that's a good big picture kind of thing to look at. It's not advanced analytics in any sense, but from a Bengals perspective, from a guy who's watched this team come apart at, you know, the, the instantly for seemingly no reason at all over the years, uh, you know, it's, it's a positive development and the, the, the mind frame, the mindset that they've had and this, the kind of, you know, mental toughness that they've shown is, is very unbengal like. So mm-hmm. uh, again, you know, I can certainly nitpick and I do it all the time with this team, but you know, a couple of weeks, bad, a couple of bad performances uh, right before the bye week I, to my mind has been pretty much buried by the last two weeks. And I think the, uh, the arrow is definitely pointed up. The Bengals are essentially where I expected the Patriots to be before the season. Yeah, a lot of similarities. Which are young team, kind of on the rise, inconsistent, but in good position to get a playoff spot. And my feeling going into the season was, like, if the Patriots get a playoff spot, that's it. That's a success, right? Because that shows team on the rise, get a playoff spot. And I think that's basically where the Bengals are. I don't think there's any sense that they're like a Super Bowl contender. But I know that in our playoff odds, if the top seven teams in playoff odds all got playoff spots, the Bengals are in. Yeah. So, like, it feels like a good, successful season of a team that's building towards something. There's like, and they're and they're probably going to end up in the playoffs, and it feels good. Not to dive too deep into Bengal history, but there's a lot of talk before the year and, and as it's gone on. Is what team could this be? Is this the 2004 Bengals or the 2005 Bengals? 05 Bengals were a real powerhouse that unfortunately got short-circuited in the playoff game by the uh, extremely dirty uh, hit on Carson. Kimo, I can't even say his name, but you know, they, that was a powerful team that was, you know, headed places. 2004, you could see the, you know, you could see it was a nascent team that was building something, but they weren't quite there yet. The difference in 2004 was that you had the Steelers and the Patriots that year were elite teams that were obviously Super Bowl contenders and pretty much pummeled everyone they played. The Bengals were in that, you know, next tier down and were fighting to get into tier two this year. There is no tier one really in the AFC particularly. So even a 2004 level team that the Bengals probably are at heart can make an extra step forward just because of the competition that they'll be facing. And the fact that, you know, come playoff time, maybe you can argue the Patriots, but every other team that they're going to wind up playing, you know, uh, is not a team that they'll necessarily be fearing and might be favored against just about everybody, depending on whether it's home or away. So, you know, there's a, there's a a quiet, a qualitative difference in the level of the teams maybe, but given the overall big picture of the AFC, I think that, that gives them an edge that they wouldn't have. Ordered. I was going to say that gets us to the next question that I want to hit because yes. based on DVOA, there is a tier system in the AFC and that first tier is the Patriots and Bills. Yeah. With knowing that those teams are both inconsistent. Um, the Bills, of course, are the most inconsistent team we've ever measured. <laughs> the Patriots come out as inconsistent, but the way that the games have been, the order of the games, it's not really inconsistency, it's improvement, yeah. right? They're high in variance because they had these bad games at the start of the season and these really good games um, near the end of the season. A little cheeky asks, we'll go back, what is holding the Bengals back from being a Super Bowl contender? I mean, I just think they're, it's just a question of just, they're not there yet. Yeah, they're they like, haven't gone through it, you know? I, I, what, what but also just there's game? more improvement to be done. I'm, I'm not as much of a believer in like you have to have listen as a fan of the 2001 Patriots. I don't <laughs> yeah, believe sure. you have to have done it before in order to do it again, but they just need to get better. That's all. There's just Burroughs gotten better, but there's more improvement yet to come. The defense has gotten better, but there's more improvement yet to come. They just feel like a wild card team that could improve more. I mean, first of all, they could like go on a run over these last six games and improve more and be like the 2001 Patriots. But I'm also thinking it's more like 
the 2004 Bengals where it's like next year is the year. Yeah. Like next year is the year that everybody takes that extra step forward. Yeah. And, and what well, I think is holding them back from being a Super Bowl contender this year. Yeah. And the, and the only thing that could be in their favor is again, it's like, like with the 01 Patriots, it's like, uh, who knows what happens next year? Let's seize the opportunity now if it presents itself, which it very well right. might. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not, it's not even a question about the Bengals, what's holding them back. Of course, they can improve in several areas, but so can the rest of the AFC teams. That's really kind of the point. It's like when they play these teams, hopefully in the playoffs, they're going to be facing teams that are just as flawed, if not more so. So it's a question of who seizes that opportunity. And that, you know, when it comes to that, who really ever knows? To me, the only difference between any of those teams and uh, you know, the one separator still to me is Bill Belichick. I mean, you know, for all yeah. the sturm and drawing around him at all times, you know, he's an elite coach. He's a difference maker on the sideline that nobody else really has. And although, know, listen, I mean, I'm a big McDermott guy. I'm a big Sean McDermott. Coaches out there, no doubt. So he doesn't have the he doesn't have the historical record that Belichick does. And I know the way that the Bills have been inconsistent this year. You want to smack somebody in the head, yeah. but like I, I am a big McDermott guy. I think he's a really good coach. Um, yeah. And Harbaugh, too. I mean, I, I like a lot of these coaches. Yeah, it's just when Belichick guys. says something, you know, they're, they're going to believe him because of the hardware he puts on his hand. You know, it, there's never any questioning from what he says. And that goes a long way. And you do wonder about the Patriots' mystique and the weird things that opponents seem to do against exactly. Patriots when they come to Foxborough that just make you scratch your head. Yeah. So, so Ishan Sawai asked us before the show on Twitter, what is the main thing driving the difference in how football outsiders views the Patriots playoff odds versus other models like ESPN and 538, which have the Patriots much lower? So we have the Patriots chance to win the Super Bowl right now at like 25%. Yeah which seems absurdly high. Like I will fully admit that is too high for me. That if you told, ask me subjectively, I do think the Patriots right now have the best chance of any team in the AFC to win the Super Bowl. It should not be that high. Right. Um, and why do we have it so much different than 538 or the market, which has it more like 10% ESPN's model has it more like 10%. I honestly don't know the answer to this question. I can guess based on my knowledge of how our ratings work versus how their ratings work. Um, one difference, I think, is that I'm using a Dave, which includes weighted DVOA, which means I'm lowering the strength of those earlier games where the Patriots were not as good. But I'm not lowering them to zero. Right. And I also, I think that 538's ELO system also puts more weight on recent games. So that is a reason why our odds are different from ESPN's, but not necessarily why they're different from 538's. In fact, if I remember correctly from when I looked at 538, 538 has the Patriots number one in the AFC. They just have them lower than three NFC teams. Right. Whereas we have the Patriots now number one in weighted DVOA. So they're ahead of the Packers, Cardinals, the Buccaneers. Um, we, we just have the Patriots really, really high. And the other thing is we don't have any other AFC teams really high, like the top eight or something teams. in. If you look at uh, Dave, right, which at this point is mostly weighted DVOA, it's very little preseason. And you look at the numbers that are adjusted for quarterback. So boosting the Cardinals, boosting the Packers because of the games they've had with the backup quarterbacks, okay? Two, only two of the top seven teams are AFC teams, New England and Buffalo. So there's this big gap between New England and Buffalo and the rest of the AFC. And since it thinks that New England sweeping Buffalo is more likely than Buffalo sweeping New England, and the most likely thing is that they split the two games, um, and the Buffalo still has to play Tampa, like it just gives the Patriots really, really good odds to win the number one seed. And it feels too high to me, but, um, you know, otherwise I don't know why our ratings are so much different than ESPN. One argument I would make is that um, we, I'm right now in the playoff odds simulation equation, I don't consider offense and defense separately. 
And I probably should because we know that offense is more predictive than defense. Yeah. I think that ESPN's rating system does that, except they have the Bills number one. And the Bills are number one because of defense. Because <laughs> Allen hasn't been that much better than Mac Jones this year. So, like, it's kind of a mystery to me why we um, – why we have them so much higher than everybody else. And I'll add that I'm not happy about this. (laughs) I know I'm a Patriots fan and I'm honest about being a Patriots fan. And if we're going to have an outlier team that is better than any other side, like I would much rather have that outlier be some other team than have it be the Patriots and look like I'm some kind of um, Homer. I will say Christopher Donna, uh, or Dona's um, comment about the Patriots should do well in the playoffs because they're extremely good team on the road this season. I will say I am not a believer that home road splits really mean anything. Over time, you find that all teams basically have the same home field advantage. Like there's a little bit of an advantage uh, for uh, historically um, for home teams when the road team has had to travel a really long distance like to Seattle. But for the most part, like over time, any differences between one team and another in home field advantage tend to wash out. So I, I will say I'm not a great believer that just because the Patriots have been so good on the road this year, that that translates to being really good on the road in the playoffs. Yeah. Home road has shown to mean pretty much nothing over the last two, three years, just in. Yeah. That's the other thing, right. Which is honestly the main reason to get number one seed is so you don't have to play in the first round. Again, Yeah. You automatically go through Like that's the reason home field advantage doesn't feel like it means anything right now. No, zero. Yeah. I mean, I would just add that uh, you do live in Massachusetts Bill Belichick does have access to, you know, the lab where you put these together. His finger is on the scale of the algorithm. <laughs> See, if, Bel- if Belichick truly had access to my numbers, he would make sure the Patriots always came out worse than they were. Yeah, because true. all he wants to do is tell the, his players that they're not as good as they think they are, and therefore they have to work harder. It's true. Maybe it's Dan Sonacy. It's a two-and-four mentality. I will say, like, New England's got those two games against Buffalo, and I do think, especially with the loss of Trey White, that probably shakes things in New England's favor a bit. But they're getting about as close as, like, Buffalo's getting a mini-buy because they're coming off Thanksgiving uh, and getting that Thursday to Monday sort of break. New England has their buy. I thought they had – no, never mind. I thought they had their buy outright before that second Buffalo game, but they have their buy following. No, the buy is before the Indianapolis game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got that. But that's still it's I'm really interested to see those two games. And I think New England, I I need to check the odds again for their top seed chances, but considering that Baltimore's the only team uh ahead of them right now in seeding, I know I know Tennessee's banged up and they've got a very easy road ahead of them, but Baltimore's got a pretty tough schedule ahead. I don't want to fully pivot to them, but you know, they just played Cleveland tough, they have to play Cleveland again. They play the Packers, they play Bengals, Rams. Like they've got tough sledding. I don't think they'll be able to hold on to that one seed. I think it's who whoever's gonna end up with it. it there's no question we have the Chiefs lower than the market. Yeah. Right? The market yeah. believes in the Chiefs offense more than we do because of the fact that the Chiefs offense did have a couple of bad games. So uh, I understand that part of it. Since we don't have the Chiefs as high as the market, we're gonna have other teams higher. Oh, and hey, here he is halfway through the show joining us, Mike Tanier. You know, coming in? No. <laughs> Bruce Arians. You know, this is who it really is. If you've been watching the Beatles Get Back documentary, every day, John Lennon kind of wanders in a little bit late and kind of does his own thing. And also, I, I, see, I see George. I see Paul up there in the top left corner. I see Ringo down there, Rob. You're Ringo. And actually, no, Kel, you got the Ringo mustache. You're Ringo. And I'm John with my glasses showing up being really cool. Where's Yoko? <laughs> Yoko's not here, but I got this little this little buddy going for we're, me here. We're just talking about how um, Football Outsiders has the Patriots so much higher than any other advanced metric, um, and how I'm totally uncomfortable with that and don't quite understand what the difference is. Um, it, it makes so we, 
I'm, I'm a skeptic of the Patriots, but it makes sense to me when I look at everything statistically up until now. They seem to be right where they are. And you, I think I heard you guys talking about the Chiefs. The Chiefs still are the favorite in the market. Uh, whoa, Cade. Oh, he's back. <laughs> it's really I'm having some internet problems. I apologize. Welcome back, Kale. It's like... I thought you quit like George Harrison there. Yeah, you walked out exactly. I was just going to say. But I think nationwide, a lot of people are going to see that Chiefs, you know, rising up and having a winning streak and saying, "Oh, we're going to try and bet that." So, the, so the market says, "Well, let's not give these guys incredible odds on this." You know, let's let's suppress that market a little. I, bit. I have a graphic to show, which is the Patriots week to week chart, and the Patriots week to week chart shows you just how, like, incredibly. Up, upward trending their season has been yes and the last three weeks are just phenomenal and you wouldn't think that their game against tennessee would come out this high but the fourth quarter they got to the fourth quarter and then they destroyed tennessee in the fourth right. quarter like absolutely just suffocated them. yeah right um and so they've had these three really 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 good games they've had this incredibly steady upward trend throughout the entire season so they come out on top. And then when we lower the strength of the early season games, they get even a little bit higher than that. And then there's just this big gap between the Patriots and Bills and the rest of the AFC. And so we end up with the Patriots. You know, if the Patriots lose this week, it will change. Right. Then the Bills will probably become our favorite. But, like, we just have them with really high odds. And it makes me uncomfortable uh, as I said before you came on, Mike, like, honestly, I would rather, if we're going to have an outlier, I would rather have it be any other team than the Patriots. Of course. This is where we are. And so this actually hits me with another question that we got before the show over Instagram from Imus18, okay. which was, at this point last year, what was the projected Super Bowl matchup and how does that compare to this year? And last year... We had our top team even higher than we had the Patriots this year. And we were wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> Last year, the number one team right now was the Saints. We gave them 32.5% odds of winning the Super Bowl. Wow. They were number one in Dave at that point. This was in the midst of Taysom time, wasn't it? I think this is adjusted for the idea that Breeze would come back. Okay. Yeah, and then we had Pittsburgh second. Remember, this is when they were eleven and zero, undefeated. Yeah, Ooh. and Kansas City third. Okay, well that's and fine. Green Bay, Seattle, and we had Tampa Bay at four point three percent because they were fourth in Dave, mm -hmm. but they were only seven and five, and they were entering their goofy part of the schedule where things got very easy for them. Right mm -hmm. at that so, point. When I look back at last year's playoff odds, it emphasizes to me the idea that I need to redo the playoff odds equation to make offense more important than defense. Because what the Saints and Pittsburgh were driven by defense, and we knew their offenses had some problems, right. and we had them overprojected. That being said, somebody asked me a couple weeks ago to go through history, I think after week 10, and see what team we had on top of the Super Bowl odds each year. So I went back. I have 12 years of Super Bowl odds saved. Okay. And roughly the average top team after 10 or 11 weeks is at about 25%, which is about where the Patriots are now. Okay. And three out of those 12 teams won the Super Bowl. In other words, of the teams that we had at 25% odds, 25% of them <laughs> seems to be kind of accurate, right? The problem is when probability is accurate, people think that probability is inaccurate because you said you gave them a 25% chance of winning the Super Bowl and they didn't. God right. forbid. Yeah, we gave them a 75% chance of not winning the Super yeah. Bowl and they didn't. So we were right. The problem is I would want the teams that we had number one and number two at this point in the season to at least win a playoff game. <laughs> which did not happen with New Orleans and Pittsburgh no. last year. Right. And Pittsburgh in particular, like really fell off after that 11-0 start. 
I feel now, like I know. there should have been an indicator for Pittsburgh. There should have been an indicator because everybody was looking at that like like well, I'll give I'll give PFF some credit. They're our rivals, but I will give them some credit. They're yeah. grading on Roethlisberger mm-hmm. threw up this gigantic red flag mm-hmm. that the Pittsburgh thing was not sustainable. Now also Pittsburgh had defensive injuries after starting eleven and zero. So their defense fell off too. Oh, the Saints did win in the playoffs. I'm sorry. Yeah, they won. is right. The Saints beat the Bears. Who were the how could you forget the game on Nickelodeon? Yeah. Oh God, that's right. I totally forgot about Mitch Trubisky, MVP. <laughs> the slime game. <laughs> yes, useful was first says you could still say that Pittsburgh is still falling now. Yes, Pittsburgh started falling and after the 11 and 0 start last year, and it's never ended. Like. We agree. There's no way Roethlisberger can come back next year, right? No. Oh, they'll talk themselves into it somehow. I mean, he shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, who? Speaking of, uh, I've fallen and I can't get up. Who personifies that more than Ben Roethlisberger, right? But I, <laughs> even saying that, like, he isn't the worst player, and he's not the a one issue on that team. Like, he's kept them in some games. He's still made some plays. Their offensive line is terrible. The line's terrible. Their defensive – we talked about this in the Almanac before the season. Like, you know, their front A 11 starters on defense were, you know, capable, highly capable. But their depth was not good, and any injuries was going to expose some things. And they've had a ton of injuries, and they're just not the same defense. And even when when Watt plays right now – and he has COVID now too, but uh, even when he plays, he's not, you know, the, the same Watt that you expect out there uh, destroying games and planets. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, they have a lot of issues and it's the quarterback is obviously the most visible, always gets the blame, et cetera, but they, they just have nothing. They have no wide receivers really outside of Deontay Johnson. I mean, you know, they. No, I disagree with that. I think they're good at wide receiver. Chase Claypool is good. And James Washington, for a fourth wide receiver, you can do a lot worse as your fourth wide receiver than James Washington. But talent-wise, yes, but where is he? I mean, he's not playing a lot, and he's not getting the job done. There's got to be some reason for it. The coaches don't trust him, clearly. Uh, And, you know, Schuster's hurt. Obviously, that is something. Smith's Schuster is hurt. That has something to do with it, too. Uh, And, yeah, their line is – is young and it hasn't cohered in any in any capacity uh and they, they just don't give roethlisberger any kind of chance i'm not believe me i'm the last guy who's going to sit there and defend ben roethlisberger for the the, the pain and anguish that guy has caused me low these many years <laughs> nevertheless you know watching their games like i i still think you know they have other problems bigger than him and i think the steelers coaching staff would, would agree on that they have a lot of issues I mean, that being said, what good is a good wide receiver core if your quarterback can't throw 10 yards? Like, Ben Roethlisberger's arm has looked bad at points this year. Like, it's, it's with all the skill position players they've surrounded him with, like, you really can't do much with him just because of how much he's deteriorated over the last couple of years. Yeah, this is kind of the optimization where they've tried everything with all the screen stuff and all the short stuff. And all the just launch the 50-50 ball up the sideline and maybe you'll get a penalty because they're going to grab Claypool or they're going to grab Juju when he was healthy. They've optimized everything you do. Every shovel pass to the tight end ever known the man has been throwing the fire, fire move. And this is where it gets you. It gets you a tie against the Lions. It gets you beaten down when the team is on. And sometimes you can catch somebody napping and get enough offense out of that. Right. The tie with the Lions was without Roethlisberger. So as useful was That's first right. point, that actually tells you what their future is like without Roethlisberger. <laughs> right. And there's, you know, if you look at it, I've been surfing through some mock drafts just because that's usually what Bengal fans do around this time of year. Yeah, not the, the muscle memory is takes me right to the uh, collegiate <laughs> prospects. And yeah, I think people know this, but, you know, the, it's not like we're a raft of quarterbacks coming out who are going to make a big difference in 22 and maybe even 23. So unless they find a way to somehow, you know, pull off a, uh, a Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers coup, they got issues going forward, no doubt. Uh, Bill Houston says the Patriots remind him of an old Marty Schottenheimer team. Great D that creates mm-hmm. turnovers, but an average quarterback. They get tossed in the second round when they face the Bills or Chiefs. Well, I mean, the one thing I'll say about that is the Bills are kind of the same thing this year. I mean, Josh Allen is has been a little bit better than Mac Jones, especially when you include in rushing value. Josh Allen has been clearly better than Mac Jones once you add in the rushing value. But, um, you know, the Bills are living, living off their defense this year, too. The Chiefs, on the other hand, you know, the Chiefs are, you know, built to all of a sudden go – 
hog wild in the playoffs and beat a team like that. Right. I've got all kinds of stats and I'll use them tomorrow about uh, field position and things like that. And the Patriots really look like a Marty Schottenheimer team when you count things like starting field position and things like that. So Hitchhiker Spy says, we thought that 2021 was a strong quarterback draft, and so far only Mac has hit. So projecting hmm. college quarterbacks is too hard to be confident in any prospects helping or hurting. Right. It's true. I mean, the fact yeah. is, you know, we know what we know, but we don't know as much as we think we do. And it's possible that these quarterbacks that we're writing off could be good. That's why I think that while people are saying that, like, Detroit should use their number one pick on a pass rusher, I don't think it's crazy for them to use it on a quarterback, even if none of the quarterbacks are considered that good. Just because if you hit on quarterback, it means so much more than hitting on a right. pass rusher. Yeah, right. Straight down. The yeah, thing is, we, we do have a general idea of how good prospects are, and this right. just doesn't look like a good None of them are Lawrence or Fields. Let's put it that way. But, you know, they haven't improved, shown much this season so far, perhaps, but those guys, you know, as prospects – are in a totally different league than the guys coming out this year. Yeah, your historic quarterback classes sometimes disappear in a couple of years. They weren't that good. But the terrible quarterback classes, the, the Geno Smith. Right, the, the EJ Manuel year did not suddenly surprise us. Right, right. So you, you can usually tell bad. You can't always tell great. Yeah, but I mean, um, credit to the other four guys that are in this class. Like, it does feel as though, like, Mac Jones could not have been put in a better situation right. to succeed getting put in New England. And I still like there's absolutely still time for a Lawrence, a Fields to shake out here, especially if Chicago can get away from Matt Nagy. My opinion, like there's still a lot of there's still a lot of time on the clock for these guys. But going back to the uh shot and comment, Matt Jones hasn't quite been an average quarterback this year either. Like he's 13th in DYAR. If we're going to Ben Baldwin's uh EPA CPOE metric, he's 10th, and I I think he's also uh he's eighth in cpoe or sixth in cpoe so he's played you know for where he's been at he's played pretty well above his pay grade yeah. i mean the fifth quarterback off the board in a loaded class but i think again like i said that also comes down pretty heavily to just situation where he's landed like being surrounded by a top offensive line having decent skill position players to work with like pretty Great good situation being yeah those old Schottenheimer quarterbacks were like late career Montana and Dave Craig and all too. So it wasn't like we're talking about like a low level quarterback play. We're talking about more like ball control, yak quarterback play. And I think that really applies here. Steve DeBerg, baby. Yes. <laughs> and the naked. What do you guys think about Trevor Lawrence? Cause I feel like, like it's time we can start talking about how bad he's been, but I still feel like, like you can ask the question, but the answer is still, he's in a bad situation. But I, I don't. But I, I feel like we can ask the question. I got worried. Of course, I was watching the Falcons game. I've explained to you guys why I wound up watching Falcons games. But nice. when he, it's when he throws on the move, he, he his arm is like back here in some weird place. It, it, it there's this weird unnatural thing of his motion of his feet are not set, and I'm, that worries me because he didn't look like that at Clemson at all. That like he's just the coaches are just like you know go go win games first try things and the bad habits are starting to come in like the bad mechanics are coming in, the bad decisions that come from never having anybody open that's a concern that I have that I didn't have a couple weeks ago because I wasn't really watching him and like his delivery on these passes. Um, Bill Houston says, "Why does Tanier watch Falcons games?" <laughs> I am a masochist. <laughs> uh, there is a person in our local tavern who has a personal connection to the Falcons who always has one television on, usually right over my shoulder here. And that Falcons game is on no matter what. And that person is cheering ardently for the Falcons. So I have become sort of a Falcons <sighs> expert. I live uh, in Atlanta. I can never watch them. So, you know, that's all he needs to know. Good call. Good decision. <laughs> Pie, by the way, says, does FO Plus offer game-by-game DYAR splits, specifically for postseason? No. But... It's something we're working on first for regular season, then for postseason. Stay tuned. Right. Ooh, uh, and don't forget, FO Plus is only 99 cents a week right now with right. an annual subscription to get all of our DVOA splits and when they finally come out, DYAR splits and picks against the spread and fantasy football tools and all that stuff. 99 cents a week for an annual subscription. Footballoutsiders.com slash subscribe. Yes. The hard sell. Um, 
Here's another question we got before the show, which is now that we have Mike on, we want to talk about Hobo Power asked, what is the argument for Gail Sayers being in the Hall of Fame, but not Sterling Sharp? Sharp was more dominant at wide receiver in the 90s than Sayers was at running back in the 60s, and Sharp played in 44 more games. Why doesn't he get any consideration? Well, first of all, there's there's no argument. The, the Hall of Fame committee doesn't meet and say, well, we have to get, like, continuity between Gail Sayers and Sterling Sharp. You know, th- this is not something that was ever discussed. Gail Sayers was put in, I forget what year, what, 1971 or 72, and Sharp's candidacy came in in the 90s. So at no point did anyone look for internal consistency there. No, there's probably not anybody who was on the committee in the 70s who's still on the committee. Right. Is right. Sterling Sharp even able to be discussed now, or at this point, if we pass that, he would have to go in for the Veterans Committee? I think he has to go in. I believe he was still getting semifinalists a year or two ago, but I think he's going into the Seniors Committee, where he goes into that huge pool of old-timers, at which point he will finally bubble to the top. Um, what happened with Sharp's candidacy was he came in, his career was short, he came in during the big log jam of Art Monk, Andre Reed, Chris Carter, this was a big uh, to-do because Chris Carter had to wait like three or four turns to get in the Hall of Fame, and Tim Brown was in that. And they all got to the finals pool at the same time. They would all get argued about, and the vote would split, as often happens in the Hall of Fame. So Sterling Sharp comes in, a younger player, a more recent player, without all those numbers, without rings, anything else like that, and he gets stuck behind all of these guys and just falls off the back of things. Now, the fact that he never bubbled back up, I do find that odd. And I'm not sure why that happened. Uh, you know, his brother came through and got, got in the Hall of Fame and everything. He doesn't. But that's what happened with his candidacy. And it, it, he just got, I don't say, think it's great. I don't think it's fair. I think he's an outstanding candidate. But that's what happened. That's why he got there. Gil Sayers was a 60s legend. And a right. Todd Singer points out, Brian's song had something to do with yeah. the fact that Gil Sayers yeah. got into the Hall of Fame with just 68 games. He was, And he was beloved. Yeah. And as somebody who tried to cover Sterling Sharp on multiple occasions and tried to talk to him as a member of the media and who votes on the Hall of Fame, but members <laughs> of the media. Sterling Sharp, kind of a prick to be uh, blunt about it all. And, you know, you wouldn't think that would enter into it. But when you have Gail Sayers, who's beloved, versus a guy, and Shannon Sharp, who's beloved, and Sterling Sharp, a guy who blew off the media his entire career, then turned right around and went on ESPN. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an NOS now. Yeah. People in the media do not like that. And if there's <laughs> even a slight chance to, you know, give right. a little bit of payback or maybe just kind of push into the back of the pile, I think they took it in Sterling Sharp's case. He's a borderline sure. case and, sure. you know, small things like that. Matter. There are Sterling Sharp stories like that. Now, of course, the disclaimer I always point out is Warren Sapp would never get in the Hall of Fame right. ever if we could really hold that much of a grudge. But it is like that. You here, Here's this list of people and it's Luke, Tim Brown and Art Monk and Andre Reed. And Chris Carter and Sterling Sharp goes on there, and you're like, no one will know if I if I sandbag him a little bit if I just pick one of the other guys. I have a completely viable alternative here. You know, that's the thing, exactly. You know, yeah. he's not a slam dunk like Warren right. Sapp necessarily, or you know, right. somebody. There's plenty of pricks in the. I mean, Lawrence Taylor is not exactly uh, Mother Teresa, but I mean, guys <laughs> who are on the edge when it's just going to be this or that little scooch, or like you say, just a non-push in their favor. Mm-hmm. is going to make the difference yeah, it enters into it any discussion of the hall of fame has to start by just delineating the differences between the nfl hall of fame and baseball because yes. people tend to have the baseball hall of fame on the brain yeah. and remember the two main differences the first is it's of a committee of about 32 people not 500, 500 right. or 600 I think and it's two it's not that everybody over a certain percentage gets in it's five a year yep like if 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 you had a unanimously, everybody on the Hall of Fame committee believed that seven guys should get in, mm-hmm. you would still only have five. Matter. Guys. No. Yeah. That's right, and that's what happens every single bout when you go in there and you say, "How did you snub Zach Thomas?" It's like we didn't snub Zach Thomas. We had to get Alan Fanica in this year. We had to, we decided to get Calvin Johnson in this. Right. Year. That's Except- why I feel like like Leroy Butler. Like Leroy Butler is. We all agree he's going in at some point. Yes. It's just a question of there just hasn't been a year where he makes that five. Like there's going to be a year where he makes that five and someone younger is going to get snubbed, maybe Richard Seymour or something. Right, right. And that continues to happen year after year. And when there's a logjam of five or six guys at a position, which there often is, forget about it because it's then chaos, split votes. And if there's five, two or two guys from the same team and they're 
vocal reporter can only bang the drum so much, they're going to pick guy A or guy B, and the other person's going to be on the on the wayside. This happened with Holt and Bruce for a while for the for the Rams, where it's like, yeah, yeah you, you desperately are trying to, to to if you're Howard, you're desperately trying to vote for both of them, and you sort of have to prioritize one at some point. Howard Balzer, you're yes, mentioning, yes. who's the I believe right. the St. Louis representative. I believe yeah. he's still the representative for the Rams rather than a Los Angeles. So. Yeah, that is funny. Hitchhiker's Pie asks, is voting reform ever likely for the hall? The number of players have gone up, but it's still the same size entry every year because we've gone from 26 teams to 28 to 30 to 32. Uh, rumor has it they're going to get more and more players involved. And to Rob's point, if you think little grudges are bad among the media, wait until there's a lot of players yeah, involved. Good point. It's going to be ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, if you think that'll get the politics out of it, have you ever heard an old player talk? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, th so that part of it is going to change whether that's reform or not. I personally got a uh, a reform that, that's being weaved up into like higher. I have no idea where it is, but some of the people I talked to have suggested on my, you know, on my behalf, if you if you are a five time finalist, that you get a special separate vote. And that you, your vote is separate from the five. And if they give you a majority, then you go in. So if you are Lori Butler and you're a five-time finalist or Baselli, the five-time finalist, they say, okay, guys, we're not going to have another argument over Butler or They don't even need to make a majority. They could make it 75%. Yeah. And you would 75%. still have guys getting yeah. that one. You're in, you're in, you're in, and now let's vote for our five. And over two or three years, there'd be like eight guys get in. And then after that, it'd be probably be back to five because you'd probably lower the log jam. Um, Todd Singer says, Zach Thomas pitched to the score. I think that's a comment regarding. Uh, I know Mike. Mike has a saying, which is every city has its linebacker. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. it's the Jack Morris argument. Yeah, I mean, I think Thomas of, of all those linebackers, where every city has their linebacker, Thomas may be the best of them right now. He's until we get to until we get to Bobby Wagner or Patrick Willis. Yeah, Wagner will get in, and Willis is now a semifinalist, so he's getting in there. I think Zach Thomas is getting in. I don't, I don't know what that. I don't know baseball, so I don't know what pitch to the score. The, the idea is, um, I think, is he he um, he plays better against bad teams than against good teams. He played oh. better. His stats aren't as great because it wasn't about just being dominant. He would, you know, pitch 120 pitches when his team was up six two and win six five, but it, you know, his team still won that kind of stuff. You know. Okay. So, it's not about. It's a way of excusing poor. Uh, it is a Jack Morris reference. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know there are there are some old coaches, and I've heard this through the grapevine. I talked to a lot of the voters, who are very pro Zach Thomas, and there are old coaches who are very anti Zach Thomas. I think talking to Todd, what Todd Singer is saying there, that he sort of get a lot of tackles in a lot of situations where it was schemed up for him, schemed up for him, etc. Yeah. Um, I think there's enough old coaches who. And old players of note who bang the table for him that he should get in eventually. I mean, that's true of most of the middle linebackers, right? right? Most of the every town has their linebacker candidates, right? I mean, right. Sam Mills yeah. played a role where he, the guys in front of him basically soaked up blocks so he could get tackles, you know? Right, right. Or, or it's just like the entire argument is he was the heart and soul of our team. And it's like, well, we appreciate that. There were 32 hearts and souls or 28 back in the day. And they all had a couple of pro bowl appearances and, and not all of them, you know, certainly not all of them. Most of them cannot be hall of famers. London Fletcher comes into that. I think Fletcher's another guy who tons and tons of tackles and things like that. And then, you know, you have to, you have to stack it all up and see if it reaches the hall of fame. I, I don't think it would. Right. Fletcher Mills, Teddy Bruschi, I think would go in that right. argument. Right. Um, right. He's Jesse like the for the argument. Who? Jesse Tuggle, the Jesse Atlanta Tuggle. guy. They always compared him to Sam Mills. Like, He's our Sam Mills. Yeah, and he had a heck of a couple of really, really well players. Love them, yeah. It's all these guys who are tend to be, you know, kind of short of stature, not great prospects coming in, overachievers. Yeah. Find their way into the league and then play very well, much higher than you would think, looking at them physically or just, you know, how they profile coming into the league. And those guys have, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of emotional weight and attachment to attach to those guys. No question right. about it. It doesn't necessarily mean they're Jonas all says, Erlacher is the most overrated of those guys. <laughs> yeah, his his star has descended lately. I mean, there were a couple no, of years ago. Erlacher is one of those guys who's so under overrated, he's become underrated. I can see that. Yeah. I can the see hair, that. The hair situation with him doesn't help. There's no question. He's on the center of some great defenses. 
<laughs> and yes, they also had Lance Briggs and they also had Peanut Tillman, but right. he was the main player on some great teams. On some great some teams that made the Super Bowl with Rex Grossman. Yeah, right. At quarterback. Although there's going to be Devin Hester arguments coming up because he's now a semifinalist. And I, I, I can't see I I want to believe, but I can't believe that he's a Hall of Famer because as, as dominant as he was as a return man, he was a return man. We're talking about, you know, seven plays a game, et cetera. But that conversation is going to be had if he makes the finals t- uh, group. Yeah, Hester is an interesting conversation because it honestly has nothing to do with Hester himself. It's really about whether you think a return <laughs> man can go in the Hall of Fame. But if Hester goes in, then Corderell Patterson has to go. I don't know about has to. Has Corderell, I'm as good as Corderell has been, have they started just like kicking off to the up man to get away from? It? I know they did it. A few they, times. There, were, there was a while where they did. They okay. since they changed the rules, they, they people haven't really done that. Right, right, and that, and that's it. But I, I mean, I go back to some of the great return men in history, including Gail Sayers. Yeah, and it's like uh, you know what else did you do? That's 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 the potatoes of your uh, Hall of Fame debate. Where's the steak? You know, so right. I mean, at least it's a different argument than the Steve Tasker argument. Because you feel like because they score touchdowns, at least return men have a little bit more impact on them. Yes. Yes. The, the Tasker argument is fan favoritism. Every town has their Steve Tasker. If you enjoy the Tasker argument now, you'll love it in 15 years when we're having it about Matthew Slater. Oh, God. I would take Slater, I would take Slater over Tasker. But instead of, the Buffalo, instead of the Buffalo media, it will be the New England media. I can't wait because there's no homerism in the Boston media. Love They're all a bunch of peaches, personality-wise. Too. Love you guys. Um, <laughs> one other question we got before the show, by the way, just to bring this up, because I tweeted about it actually yesterday. The Simpsons paradox with the Chargers in San Francisco. For people who don't know what Simpsons paradox is, Simpsons paradox is when you have um, one, one group is better than another group in two different things. But when you combine them, the second group is better than the first group in the combination because of what the ratio is right. between the samples. So San Francisco is better than the Chargers, both passing and rushing. But the Chargers have better offensive DVOA because they pass much more than the 49ers do. I love it. That's Simpson's paradox. So I love it. Jay Simpson? Uh, I believe this yeah. paradox was different. That's right. <laughs> Not going to get it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I did point that out over Twitter yesterday. So, yes, oh, I have yeah. noticed it. And it is always interesting when that happens because they pass more often. The Chargers end up with a better offense than the 49ers, even though the 49ers are better on both runs and passes. Well, the 49ers are better at getting 18 play, 75 yard drives that last nine minutes and 44 seconds. So, they yeah, have- the anti Seahawks. <laughs> that game is going to be just a 49er show. They're playing this week. Yeah. yeah. Time of possession is going to be 54 minutes for the 49ers. Yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah, but the Seahawks are still going to complete three 50-yard passes and lose by only three. <laughs> I hate Let's hope it's that competitive. I, I don't hate the Seahawks. I hate the 2021 Seahawks. I really hate them. Yeah, Yeah. well, they're, you know, I wrote about them this week. They're, they're, they may have actually broken DVOA. Is it because they play – they get to have so few plays that when they have successful ones, they, they. Yeah. Because what happens is that the denominator is small <laughs> because the number of plays is small. Right. So since their successful plays are so successful, they end up coming out as kind of average. Oh my God. Because there's just not enough plays. To, it's just normally this happens in like a game, right? You have teams that for a game have this combination of three and outs with a couple of deep plays. Right. You rarely have a team that does that for an entire year. Usually being more efficient means eventually you'll have more plays and you won't go clean out so much. And they're just really crazy. They get more like themselves. But what's what's confusing is that I went and found that the 2016 Miami Dolphins had the same thing going on, Hmm. except they went 10 and 6. Adam Gase, a quarterback, uh, head coach? I believe that was Tannehill with Adam Gase, yes. Yeah. And so and that just confuses me even more. The year they had like a lot of three and outs and only five plays per drive. 
but their DVOA was average because they had deep shots. And instead of going three and eight, they went 10 and six. So I threw up my, once I discovered that, I was going to write about how unique the Seahawks were until I found another team just like them that was only five years old. And then I threw up my hands. I don't, I don't freaking understand the stupid Seahawks. I just know they're not fun to watch. Play the no. Jets twice and win. They are not. They are brutal to watch. Unless you like watching the other team's offense, which Washington, eh. like it is. Like deep shots are fun, but like I'd much rather watch te- two teams just moving the ball down the field than have to watch the three and out, 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 over and over and over. Because also turnovers are fun, and Seattle doesn't have any of those. Right. Seattle is number one in the league in fewest turnovers per drive. They go three and out, three and out, three and out, but they never turn the ball over. They punt a lot. Good for Michael Dixon. Yeah, yeah, Dixon leads the league in punts and punt yards, but not punt average. Not average. And uh, I was doing a lot of field position research. Again, we'll probably talk about tomorrow because that game is probably on the list. And they're like the only bad team that has a major field position advantage. That game is not on the list. Screw that game. <laughs> tomorrow. Well, do we think this is it for Pete Carroll? I mean, to take a more macro question, I mean, where do we see him at the end of this year? I know he's got a ton of power there. It's sort of, sort of up to him, but, you know. I don't know how their ownership think, but I think this is um, – this would be a good time to start over, and it doesn't mean that, that Pete Carroll is a bad coach or that John Schneider is a bad GM. I just feel like – this is a good time to start it. The same when the Eagles said goodbye to Andy Reid. Like, yeah, 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 this yeah, is a yeah. this is a good time to refresh the the the, the refresh the team. I question whether you can get more out of Russ. I do question. Like, I I don't think you always choose quarterback over head coach, but just considering where their draft positioning is and like their ability to actually recoup and rebuild this team mm-hmm. through the draft and through prospects. I wonder if the nuclear option of trading Russ is a viable option just because they are so limited in the picks that they have. But even if I traded Russ, I would still feel like it was time to hit the reset button on the front office. Oh, I agree. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, they've got to recoup anything at this point. I agree. I mean, it's worth worth answering the phone because quarterback needy teams are going to be calling because there's nobody in the draft. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if it's a city where Ciara wants to live, then you got to let go. (laughs) <laughs> All right. What one last question before we go for today, Bill Houston, Rob? Do you consider the debut of the Icky Shuffle to the be the apex of the Bengals franchise? <laughs> well, it's either that or you know the first game that uh, I remember watching uh, when they beat the Steelers and then uh, in a in a dramatic victory uh, in the old Riverfront Stadium and then with the AFC Central, AFC Central yeah. in front of them went to Houston the following week and fell flat on their butt and lost to both. Yeah, the Icky Shuffle is way, way up there. I mean, it still resonates, and we're talking, what, 30-plus years from now. I mean, that, I never would have thought that at the time. Didn't he do an ad a couple years ago? Yeah, where he's, he's, he's you know what the Icky Shuffle is? Say yeah. again? Me? Yes. Yeah. No, I know what the Icky Shuffle is. Okay. Oh, the whole, whole yeah. thing conversation went up in my head, but I know what the Icky Shuffle is. <laughs> if we had more room, I would do the Icky Shuffle right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's – it's almost because he got hurt then the following year and never really did anything again. And it's, it's had such a afterlife almost because of that. And it was, he was such a comet streaking across the sky. Uh, is that the apex given their lack of anything <laughs> in future uh, Super Bowls that they played or anything that, uh, you know, uh, any better dance moves, I, I guess, Chad, Ojo Cinco Johnson would quibble with that. And this this past week's Temptations line that they ran in the end zone was pretty good, too. But. I was going to say, he got hurt and never did anything again. Is like That's like the title of the history of the Cincinnati that's, Bengals franchise. That's definitely the subhead of the Bengals' uh, 50-year history. It's really just been crushing. That's why I knock wood every time I talk about this year's edition, that they remain healthy and, uh, you know, it's – it's something we can all hope for, but it, the addition of the 17th game really doesn't do wonders for that, uh, that particular <laughs> or any other team. Yeah. All right, folks. Thank you to Rob Weintraub, Kale Clinton, Mike Tanier for joining me today. Thank you to everybody watching. I appreciate all of you, everybody asking questions. We love your questions. Uh, thanks for watching on Twitch, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, listening after the fact on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network. Please 
Subscribe to the show. Tell your friends. Post about us on social media how much you love the show. We're here every weekday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tomorrow, JP Acosta will join me and Mike Tanier to preview week 13. And then Parker Fleming will come in late in the show and preview the college conference championship games. Uh, Can anybody stop the Georgia Bulldogs? Your hometown boys, Rob? No. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't seem likely this year. No, they're they're a powerhouse. All right, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for watching the show. Thanks for listening to the show. We will see you again tomorrow. Take care.